Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we ask that what we have just sung would be a reality in our lives. Father, that we would shed delight in lesser things and that our true delight, our true joy, our true hope, the true satisfaction of our souls would be Christ alone. Father, tear down the idols of our hearts this morning. May your word be the sharp two-edged sword that it is. May it pierce Father, deep into our hearts, revealing the areas of our lives that continue to rail against your truth. Father, may it discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, and again we are looking and taking sort of as our theme as we look through these minor prophets, the goal of tilling or breaking up the hard ground of our souls, tilling the soil of the soul. And we looked at how Jeremiah calls us to break up our fallow ground, to prepare our hearts so that God would work upon us and that we would sow not among the thorns, not among the rocks, but that we would sow among good ground. And we spent our time last week introducing the prophet Zephaniah and speaking of what he was sent to do. And, and we, we talked about those things that we're going to look for here as, they were, as we're called to listen, as we're called to uh, respond to what God is saying and, and to examine our hearts, to, to wait for the Lord, to be patient, to hope in Him. And so now we come to the beginning of Zephaniah's prophecy. This really begins in verse 2. And what we're seeing as Zephaniah begins this book is a clear understanding of how God responds to idolatry. What is God's response to idolatry? I think if you grew up in church, you went to Sunday school, you're likely familiar with the story of the great battle of God versus Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah was seeking to call Israel back to their worship of Yahweh, the true God. And in doing so, he challenged the prophets of Baal, who were seeking to lead Israel away and to worship other things rather than worshiping the one true God. And there in that moment, we see on this mountain, Mount Carmel, there's two altars set up and the prophets of Baal crying out to Baal and asking Baal to send down fire from heaven. They're doing everything they can in their power. They're crying out with the loud voices. They're literally cutting themselves as, as though they're giving their blood as a sacrifice that, would, that Baal would look upon and send down this fire. And Elijah comes and, and mocks them. Maybe, maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe you need to cry out louder. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I mean, these are the things that Elijah literally says to the prophets of Baal. And what is demonstrated in those moments when Baal does not act is that Baal does not exist. 
He's not a God. You can cry out to Him as much as you want to, but He will never bring hope. God demonstrates in that moment the reality that Baal is no hope for humanity. And then God sends down His fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice and the altar that Elijah had set up there. And after this had been clearly demonstrated, the people of Israel make a covenant with God that they will never again go to Baal. And Elijah comes and the people come and they they take and gather up the prophets of Baal and they root them out of the land through violent means. Now Zephaniah prophesies years after that event. And guess what Israel is doing again? Worshiping other gods. And so Zephaniah comes and and he shows us how God is going to respond to Israel's idolatry. What we're going to see is he seeks to do the same thing that was demonstrated with Elijah. He is going to show the emptiness of the gods that we worship. And then as he wipes them off the face of the earth, he will demonstrate clearly that He is the only God. Now, you may be here and you'd be like, that's interesting history, and I'm glad that you know about these, these old idols, but we don't, have pro- we don't have idols to bail in our houses today. We don't do that type of thing today. Well, we may not have physical statues, but the reality is that each and every one of our hearts is able very quickly to go after other gods. And if we are honest with ourselves, we are all very much like Israel. We are all idolaters. And so Zephaniah's words are a word of stark warning. He will also point us to hope in the end. But before we get there, Zephaniah comes and he shows us that we all, every one of us, are guilty of idolatry, and we deserve God's judgment in response to that idolatry. But what we're going to see is our response to that reality is we must turn to Christ and wage war on the idols of our own hearts. We must turn to Christ and wage war on the idols of our own hearts. Look with me in Zephaniah chapter 1. We'll read verses 2 through 6. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. 
Zephaniah does not pull any punches in the beginning of his prophecy. He hits hard right away. And he does this because Israel has been so hardened in their hearts towards the things of God. And this is where God's word becomes a hammer breaking up the hardness of our own hearts. There are two things I want us to consider this morning about Zephaniah's prophecy. The first is that God removes our idols. God removes our idols. Now, by saying this, I'm not saying he removes them from our... He will eventually remove them from his people's hearts, but the reality is he shows that those idols don't exist at all. And what we, the first thing we see about these things is that we make idols of what God has created. God, by destroying the things we are prone to worship, demonstrates that he alone is worthy of that worship. The opening verses of this prophecy are striking and terrifying. God is going to sweep away everything. Zephaniah does not come with a word of encouragement. He comes with a word of devastation. Now again, I think it's important for us to realize that Zephaniah is prophesying during a time of revival. Israel is... is during Josiah's reign, turning back to the Lord, Josiah is putting in reforms, and yet Zephaniah comes with these words. And I've mentioned this before in the last couple weeks, that, that we would expect Zephaniah to come and to encourage and to, and to, to build up and, and to say, keep going, and he does. But first, he shows us the results of not continuing to seek the Lord. This is a word of absolute worldwide devastation. The order in which things are discussed here and even the underlying Hebrew of what's here hint at what God is doing. He is turning back creation. It's interesting as he speaks of this, he starts in verse 3 of, well, first of all, verse 2, he says he's going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And then he describes how that works, and he works backwards from the creation account. Remember, the last thing that God created was mankind. The first thing he mentions of being swept away here in verse 3 is man, and then beast, sweeping away the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This reversal of creation serves a striking display of God's absolute power and sovereignty. And it's a reminder of the curse. Why is God wiping the surface of the earth clean? Why is He carrying all these things away? It is because creation is corrupted by man's sin. And so God essentially uncreates what He has created. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation is languishing underneath the results of sin. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
The curse has corrupted not just humanity, but this entire world. And God is sweeping away that which is corrupted. The imagery, as we come to the end of this, when God says, I'm sweeping away or wiping away everything from the face of the earth, it reminds us of what the world was like before God created upon it. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then how is the earth described? The earth is without form, it's void, it's empty. It's darkness covering the face of the deep. And this is exactly what God is returning the world to, as Zephaniah describes it. The face of the earth is being made barren again by the word of the Lord. And I think it's important to note again, the, the beginning verses of this prophecy, the word of the Lord in, in verse 1, came to Zephaniah. What is that word saying? And Zephaniah emphasizes it again. He punches it. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So let us be very clear what Zephaniah is saying here. It is not a matter of discussion. It's not up for debate. It's not like, well, maybe this is going to happen. God will act this way towards this world. He's going to wipe away everything. Now, this should start to get us in the mindset of where our hope should truly lie. Because if the things in this earth are going to be swept away, why do we depend on them so much? Why do we look to them for delight and satisfaction so much when they are going to be removed from the earth. This expansive worldwide destruction served to dramatically and vividly illustrate what Solomon made clear in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything, everything but the Lord God is nothing but what? Vanity. Emptiness, nothingness. And so God displays that reality clearly here. But why is he removing the things of the earth? Because it's interesting, as we look back in Deuteronomy, and Moses warned Israel to not make graven images and not to go after idols. You know what he said that Israel would do? What the type of things they would be tempted to go after? The very things that Zephaniah describes here. Beasts, birds of the air, fish of the sea. He will go on to talk about how that Israel will go in in verse 5 and they will bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. And all of these things, Moses warns Israel and says, do not worship them. Do not bow down to them. And yet, what Israel does is fall deep into that type of thing. So God is wiping away the idols that we are so easily prone to look into. But we also must recognize that idols certainly are not um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's happening more and more. Like, just try to think of the word and it, and it disappears. Um, idols are not benign. Idols are not sort of a neutral ground because what idols end up doing is they cause us to stumble into more wickedness. 
If you notice what he says in verse 3, he's wiping away man and beast, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. And then there's this term that the ESV translates, and the rubble with the wicked. The rubble with the wicked. Now, what he's doing here and showing and demonstrating is that idols do not just simply leave us worshiping them, but rather they they cause us to be caught. They, they themselves are stumbling blocks into sin. Idols cause us to stumble into wickedness. In Ezekiel, and we're not going to turn there today, but Ezekiel refers to the ornate nature and the costly materials that are used to create idols. And he says that people will go after these things and they are stumbling blocks leading to iniquity among Israel. In Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel will remind Israel that these idols do nothing but tempt and call Israel into iniquity. God vows to wipe away the idols, not merely the physical idols, but the idols that people have taken into their heart and are causing them to stumble into sin. If you look at the practices of idolatry in the ancient world, in the time of the nations that surrounded Israel in the Old Testament, and and even the idol worship that happened in the New Testament, it was not just a simple thing of going in and bowing down to an idol. There were terrible things that accompanied the worship of these things. People would kill their own children in sacrifices to these heathen gods. They would, as we saw and were reminded of at Mount Carmel, they would cut themselves and bleed. Prostitution quickly rose up around the worship of idols and became a part of the worship itself. So that Israel did not just simply stumble into worshiping another god, but along with that, these idols caused them to stumble into deeper sin. Idolatry always leads to other repulsive and wicked actions. See, that is why God calls us to do the opposite of idolatry in the law. What is the greatest commandment of the law? On what does the whole law hang? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be reminded of that reality because apart from that, the law is useless. How how are you able to keep the Sabbath? How are you able to not covet? How are you able to not murder and to not steal? Like what is it that causes and makes those laws and the Ten Commandments accessible to us? It begins with a heart that loves God fully. The rest of the law that God gives to Israel, all of those things are meant to indicate and to show that Israel loves God more than their convenience, more than their desire for riches, more than anything. And so the law truly strikes at the very basis of what, it need, what you need to live a righteous life before God, and it begins with loving Him fully. Idolatry is anything less than that. And that is why the law 
teaches us over and over and over again as we fail to reach it, as we fail to do what it calls us to do, as we fail to live holy as God is holy, what that teaches us is that I'm an idolater. The very base of my being, there is something I love more than God that leads me into those sins. And so these idols cause us to fall into wickedness. So what does God promise to do? Wipe them away. He promises to remove them from the face of the earth. He promises to take the earth and take away the very thing that is the stumbling block of iniquity to God's people. He will remove all idols from the earth. Man and beast, bird and fish, this rubble that cause, causes humanity to sin. In fact, we see the full fruit of this in the book of Revelation. When the new heavens and the new earth, earth are described and the new Jerusalem is described. And, and what do we see about that new place? What does John make a point of pointing out about the new Jerusalem? Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why is heaven a place of pure peace and joy? Why is the eternal state a place where we will never want for anything? Because God alone is our love. There's nothing else detestable to pull us away into that sin. Now, it's easy for us to look at God scraping away these idols, these, these created beings. But the ultimate idol is ourselves. Notice what God says in verse 3. Again, He says, I'll sweep away. And it begins with what? Man. And beast, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, the rubble, with the wicked, I will cut off who? Mankind. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What we see is that God's actions of removing idols is not limited to the things outside of humanity, but humanity itself is an idol that He seeks to remove. While he sweeps or gathers to remove, as we see in verse one and at the beginning of, or, I'm sorry, in verse two and at the beginning of verse three, he uses a very strong term at the end of verse three: "I will cut off mankind." This term has the idea of cutting down, or um, and it intimates the idea of that that which is cut off or cut down once stood tall. It's a reference to the fact that God will flatten the pride of humanity. It's used of the Noahic covenant. If you remember, God said He came and He's going to destroy all of, all of the world with what? A flood. And after that has happened and after He has, he has cut off every land being, every human apart from those whom His grace has sawn fit to save in Noah 
and his family, apart from that remnant, everything else is destroyed. And afterwards, there's this beautiful rainbow that appears in the sky. And it is, it is given a new meaning. It is a sign of God's covenant that he will never again cut off mankind through the use of a flood. Genesis 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off. Same word as the word that Zephaniah is using here by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, Zephaniah, by inspiration of the Spirit, I think is being intentional about using this term. Because it is possible that Israel has come to realize or think wrongly Well, God said he's never going to cut off the world again, so that length or that extreme measure that God is going to do, it will never happen again. And the reality is, God will stand by his promise. What was Was his promise that he would never, ever cut off humanity from the face of the earth? He said he would not use a flood to do that. And so Zephaniah comes to a people who are experiencing revival, and he tells them, listen, These idols that you once followed and that you're going to be tempted to follow again, they're going to be wiped away and God is going to judge the world in the same way that he judged Noah's world, except it won't be by a flood, it will be certain. This term is strong. This term cut off carries with it the idea of destruction through violent means. It's stark. It's sobering. And again, notice how verse 3 ends. Zephaniah reminds us that this is not his personal feeling. He is not enraged. It's not an overflow of his anger. He's not saying these things to be hateful or judgmental. Why is he saying this? Because God is saying it, declares the Lord. He says at the end of verse 3. As God is removing all the idols that cause humanity to stumble into iniquity, He also casts His gaze of wrath on the greatest idol of humanity, and that is the idol of self. If we really think about what sin is, what every sin is, sin is the exaltation of oneself to the place that God inhabits. That's what every sin is. Because you think about what God has said and you consider in your own mind that your thinking is better and you say, I'm not going to listen. And you do what you want to do rather than what God has told you to do. And so you are seeking to tear him down from his place. This lies at the very root of Adam and Eve's sin. What did the devil tempt them with? You'll not surely die but you will become like God. And ever since then, the heart of humanity has been bent towards self-worship. We follow the lead of Satan. Isaiah describes him as the day star, the son of the dawn. And notice what happens to him as he leads this rebellion against God. What does God do to the devil? He what? Cuts him down. 
How are you cut down to the ground? You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. And we certainly see that today, don't we? Remember, Zephaniah is describing the day of the Lord, and it stands in contrast to the day of man. What is going on in the day of man? Man is our great God. Our society proclaims that that we've progressed, that modern man is a shining example of the human power to accomplish anything. This is what the world would say. There's nothing you can't set your mind to that you can't accomplish. This world praises self-actualization. It praises self-promotion. It praises self-worship. We feel invincible and unstoppable. We see this even, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I don't know about you guys. I like sci-fi movies. And uh, if you ever notice in sci-fi movies or in, in movies that deal with cataclysmic world events, like the world is coming to an end. There's this giant asteroid coming towards the earth that's going to destroy us. Or there's a comet coming. Or there's these weird aliens coming. And, and notice where does the hope fall for humanity in those times? You notice none of those movies ever call people when there's an asteroid coming. They never call people to cry out to God. What do they tell them to do? Fix it yourself. Send astronauts up to land on the, on the asteroid and blow it apart. Every single movie that we see that describes worldwide cataclysmic events, it looks to mankind to figure out how to save themselves from that. And what Zephaniah is saying here, there is no salvation from the wrath of God in mankind. There's no hope among ourselves. Because God is going to cut off mankind from the face of the earth. In Psalm 2, there is this discussion of the heathen raging against God, and, and they are up they are there, and they're saying, we're going to break apart God's bonds. We're going to cast Him aside. We're going to live for ourselves. And what is God doing in heaven? He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And what does that king do? He breaks those who fight against Him with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God is abundantly clear. He does not abide any idolatry. He cuts it down. I think it's important for us to remember that oftentimes as we go through life, as we experience difficulties in life, I think many times God brings suffering and trials into our lives to kick out the crutches that we tend to lean on rather than leaning on Him. You know, how would you respond if you woke up tomorrow morning and the markets 
have crashed. All the banks have had a run on, on their money and you're now without any money. How would you respond if those things that you trust and hold dear in your life are taken out of the way? Perhaps God does that to take away the idols of your own life so that you would turn to and rest upon Him. And ultimately, we need to look within ourselves and cast away our self-dependence and place all our dependence on Jesus Christ. Well, in these first two verses here, verses 2 and 3, Zephaniah is abundantly clear. But God does not merely remove the idols that cause us to stumble. He also judges idolaters themselves. Zephaniah is warning Judah and us by describing the nature of idolatry and then warning that both the leaders and the participants of idolatry that God's hand is against them. God judges our idolatry. Look in verses 4 through 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. You know, it's interesting. It's easy for us as God's people to look out and to say, God's judgment is coming on all these heathens around us. But notice where God's gaze turns now. He does not focus on the nations apart from Judah. He focuses on Judah itself. He focuses on the inhabitants of the holy city of Jerusalem. And he promises to judge among his people their own idolatry. So if you're here today and and you claim faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're a part of the church, you praise God for that. Zephaniah's words are for you today. Zephaniah, and and the way that that, um, Hebrew poetry works, I'm going to actually jump down to verse 6 because what Zephaniah does is he sort of sums up all the activities of God's own people in idolatry by describing the nature of idolatry. Look in verse 6. This is what it means to be an idolater. An idolater is someone who turns back from following the Lord and who does not seek the Lord or inquire after Him. What is the nature of idolatry? It is first turning from the Lord. It is repenting of Christ. We can't think of a more incompatible reality for someone who would claim to be a Christian and, and that would be the same thing for Judah. I mean, it's Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple is. Certainly those people would never turn from Yahweh. And yet what God is saying is that my own people have turned from me. Turning from the Lord. Idolatry necessitates a turning away from God. 
description that Zephaniah gives here is of turning back or turning around, going the opposite direction, putting distance or moving away from God. Listen, you cannot be neutral in your life with what you do with the Lord. You will either move forward towards Him or you will move away from Him. There's no middle ground. It shows us that we cannot follow Him and another. For when we follow another, we're turning away from Him. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For he will either serve, he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then notice what he comes down to. And he doesn't talk about Baal. He doesn't talk about Ashtaroth. He doesn't talk about Milcom. Who does he talk about? What does he talk about? Money! You cannot serve God and money. Now we would say, oh, I would never worship money. Really? You realize that America is the richest nation at a time when the world is at the richest place that it has ever been in human history. You don't worship money. How often do we begin to lose our our confidence, how often do we let anxiety well up in our hearts because we have financial difficulties? And understand, I'm not trying to diminish the suffering that comes from that in our day and age, but, but we live in a very materialistic society in America. Will you have more than most of the world has? Do you love it more then you love Christ. Are you willing to give of it, to give of your money? Are you willing to sacrifice? It's so easy for us to turn from God and turn to money. You know why Jesus says that it's, that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? You know why he says that? Because people trust in their riches. They become their idol. And so what we end up doing is we trust in our money and we turn away from the Lord and trust in it. Jeremiah speaks of two sins that Israel has done. They have forsaken me. Notice that turning away from. And who is our God? It's the fountain of living waters. And what we end up doing is hewing out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What has your money ever actually done for you? It's only brought concern and care and difficulty into your life. Your possessions talk about how the things that we possess end up possessing us. Your ease of life, your comfort, your relationships. There's so many things in this life that can become idols to us. And what we end up doing is when we set them to be our very confidence in life, we are forsaking God and we're 
taking a broken cistern and trying to fill it up with water. And what happens to a broken cistern? What happens to a, a vase that has a hole in the bottom? When you fill it up with water, what happens to the water? It flows out. There's no satisfaction from that. So Jeremiah goes on, you have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going, not forward and knowing him, but what? Backward. So I've stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. You know what God is saying here? It's like, listen, Israel, Judah, I've been speaking this over and over and over again. Wake up! Get it! I'm tired of holding back my wrath. So turning from the Lord is the first nature of idolatry. And the second thing is it is a neglect then to seek Him. It's a failure to come before Him. The reality is that when we slip into idolatry, even though we say we will continue to honor the Lord, we end up not seeking Him at all. We don't turn to Him or seek His input or wisdom. We just go about our lives without reference to Him. That's so easy to fall in on a day-to-day basis, isn't it? You wake up and you've got a ton of decisions to make. Are you going to have cocoa pebbles or grape nuts for, for breakfast? I would suggest cocoa pebbles because I don't know who likes to eat cardboard. But anyways, this is, this is why in the law, God commands through Moses that his people are to think of him, to meditate on his word when they lie down and when they what? Rise up. When they walk in the way, when they sit down to eat, when they're with their family and when they're by themselves, that the entirety of a person's life is to be lived in relation to God, in reference to him. We go about our days hardly thinking about him. You're at work and you think about a project you have to do. How often do you pray throughout the day at work? And I'm not saying you get up on your desk and bow your head and close your eyes and get on your knees, but you can pray without ceasing in your day. Why does does Paul call us to that? Because everything in our lives is to be referenced to him. And when we're not doing that, we need to beware because we're not seeking or inquiring of him. We're following after another idol so that is the nature of idolatry now what we see god doing here is he first speaks of how he judges the leaders of idolatry and notice what he says i will stretch out my hand against judah and against all the inhabitants of jerusalem and i will cut off from this place the remnant of baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests it's really interesting to note what God says here. First, he, dis- he will judge those who promote idolatry. And this, again, dovetails nicely with our study in 2 Peter, where 2 Peter says that there are going to be false teachers that rise up from among you, and that those false teachers will face a severe judgment from God. God has no time for people who lead His people astray. There is reserve for them, as, the, as Jude tells us, the darkness, the, the absolute darkness 
of this world. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy one, holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this is in reference to false teachers. God does not tolerate false teachers. He judges those who promote idolatry. But notice what he says again in verse 4. He's cutting off the remnant of Baal. Those would be those who are promoting him. The idolatrous priests, that would be those who are the priests of Baal. And then notice who else he cuts off, along with who? The regular priests. And this is a reference not just to those who are actively promoting idolatry. This is to those who tolerate idolatry. God will cut them off. It's interesting, in 2 Kings 23, we read a detailed account of Josiah's reforms. And after the book of the law is discovered in the temple and Josiah reads it and and Israel covenants with God that they are going to keep the law and that they're going to not go after idols, you know what the next thing he does? He destroys every instance of idolatry in Israel. He takes out of the temple the things that were used to worship the stars and the moon and the sun. He cuts down the altars and the high places. He sacrifices or he kills these false priests on the altars they had built, and then destroys those altars. He eradicates idolatry from Israel. He doesn't tolerate it. And Josiah's example and God's word here are a clarion call to us that we cannot tolerate idolatry. We live in a world where the most common catchphrase is tolerance, isn't it? We want to tolerate everyone. In fact, there are many people in the church today who seek to align themselves with idolaters for the sake of progress and peace and unity. The message of one God and one way to God through Christ is offensive to modern sensibilities, is it not? And that's unfortunately, even among those who claim Christ as their Savior. God promises to judge those who tolerate and accommodate idolatry. And it's interesting, their fate is the same as the remnant of, of Baal. They are cut off. And so God judges the leaders of idolatry. But finally, he also judges the participants of idolatry. Notice what he says in verse 4 again. He is stretching out his hand against Judah, and then not just against the leaders of these things, but against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then he describes in verse 5 what they're doing. They're going up to their housetops, their rooftops, And there they're bowing down towards the host of the heaven. They are those who are among God's people, not just the leaders, but the people themselves are going into idolatry. It's interesting to note what God says here about this idolatry. First of all, and we would expect, He judges wholesale idolatry. 
These who are going up and bowing down on the roofs to the host of heaven. They're doing this publicly. If you understand how the houses would have existed in those days, the courtyards of the houses were on the rooftops. So that's where many people would see what you were doing. And so it was clear in the sight of all that you were worshiping these other gods, giving yourself over to the sun and the moon and the stars and worshiping them. And just a quick note that, well, we would never worship the sun, moon, and stars today. That is just as powerful of a draw today as it was thousands of years ago. You ever seen a horoscope? There's actually a growth today in um, astrology as a thing that people seek after. And even, even the scientific world is sort of jumping into this worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Many of you may know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. He's an astronomer. He's a very, very smart guy. Extremely more smart than I will probably ever be in my entire life. But he says this. He says, we are stardust brought to life, then empowered by the universe to figure itself out, and we have only just begun. He's worshiping the stars and saying our significance as a people comes from our coming from the stars. God judges that wholesale idolatry, but you know what he also judges? Look at the end of verse 5. He judges sporadic idolatry. He judges those who bow down and swear to the Lord. Right? That's great. Praise the Lord. You're swearing by Him. And yet also swear by Milcom, another god. You know, the reality is, is that while many of us find wholesale idolatry repugnant, we today are all too familiar with sporadic idolatry. We'll worship the Lord on Sunday, then we'll worship our jobs, our possessions, our families, our friendships, and we justify it all by saying, well, I'm just worshiping God as well as these other things. God does not tolerate partial commitment. What does Jesus say? No man can serve two masters. God does not merely want to be first. I've heard that said often. I've probably said it myself. God does not want to be merely first. He wants your all. He wants all of you. So Zephaniah's opening words are chilling, are they not? He clearly describes how God responds to idolatry. And if we are honest, if we examine ourselves and the Spirit takes the Word and applies it to our hearts and we look deep within, we are all guilty of idolatry. And that should terrify us. Because this is how God deals with idolatry. He wipes away their idols and He wipes them away. How can we escape such calamity? How can we not be cut off? Isaiah shows us. Christ was taken by oppression 
and judgment. And for his generation, who considered that he was what? Cut off. Out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Christ on Calvary was cut off so that all who turned to Him in faith would not be cut off. Zephaniah's message should terrify us, but Isaiah's message should thrill us. Because if we turn to Christ, we will not be cut off, for He has already been cut off on our behalf. And so we can have hope from the idols of our heart. We can have hope from the judgment that God promises to idolaters by trusting in Jesus alone. That is how we find hope. And so as we find that we must respond to God's promise to destroy, we must respond to God's promise that hope is found in Christ alone. And then, as we cry out to Christ in faith, we should set ourselves to do what God does to our own idols and to cut them out of our own lives. We need to do violence against the idols of our own hearts. What does Paul say in Colossians? Put to death. Kill the things that are earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is... What? Idolatry. And then he reminds us, on account of these things, God's wrath is coming. So our response to Zephaniah's message is, recognize our own idolatry. Turn to Christ, who was cut off on our behalf for hope from our own idolatry, and then wage war against the idols of our own hearts. This is how Zephaniah provides both a message of wrath and of joy in turning to Christ. And this is how our hearts are broken up so that we would no longer turn back from following Him or fail to seek after or inquire after Him, but that our hearts would follow Christ fully. And that every moment of our lives would be lived in relation to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it. Take it and apply it to our hearts and lives. We pray this in Christ's name.